Kia ora from Victoria University of Wellington. Our podcast gives you the chance to catch up with our academics and guest speakers who lead thinking on the big questions facing society. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded. Good afternoon, um, everybody, and can I first of all say thank you very much for the welcome to the house and to such a wonderful thing to be in the beautiful Te Haringa Waka. When the steering group um, for the distinctiveness theme enriching national culture began its discussions, um, amongst the first things that we came to talk about were the problematic nature of all three words in the title, enriching (laughs) national and culture, uh, for critical scholars, but particularly for critical scholars uh, in a post-colonial setting such as we occupy. So we came quite quickly to the notion that the obviously distinctive thing about what we do, knowledge work in this place, was the treaty, and that was a foundation beginning and reference point. Hence the drawing together of the vision uh, that is the one that we state on the invitation here and the the foundation of what the distinctiveness theme uh, is all about, with all the questions that it raises. But we also were aware that while it might be obvious that the treaty is a subject and a process and a relationship that people like Mike and myself might be occupied and preoccupied by, it might not be such an obvious starting or reference point for some of our colleagues, including our excellent panellists who are going to speak this afternoon. So it led us to the idea of this forum, which was, I think um, I'm speaking for all the panel, led by Lydia Weavers and Maria Barge, um, a bit of a gamble. Was this something that everybody would want to talk about, or would we be talking to ourselves as panellists? So we were delighted that you uh, were interested to come, and we look forward to talking with you. Uh, kia ora mō um, I forgot to introduce myself. So um, um, I'm Mike Ross, and I'm a lecturer in Te Kawa Māori. Um, our first speaker is uh, Professor Susie Frankel. Uh, she joined Victoria in 1997. She teaches in the law school, and um, her research focuses on uh, interne- international intellectual property law, copyright, patents and trademarks, innovation, global intellectual property issues, the protection of traditional knowledge and the law of contract, 
Um, uh, so, and in terms of her expertise, or one of the many appointments that she has, as uh, was as a consultant expert to the Waitangi Tribunal on the Y262 Flora and Fauna, an Indigenous Intellectual Property Claim. So, um, please welcome Susie Frankel. Please. Thank you, Mike, and thank you, Charlotte, and thank you all for welcoming us here today. So that's right, I'm an international intellectual property law scholar, and a while ago that meant nothing, but now it's pretty much as a title aligning yourself to all kinds of controversies. Um, and so I will talk briefly in a time about some of those controversies. I've written myself a few reminder notes which are glaring at me under the light. So excuse me, camera, if I look in the wrong direction from time to time. So one of the themes for the steering group and one of the things we're discussing really is how the theme of enriching national culture, given Charlotte's caveat of that meaning multiple things and all difficult to define, is how that feeds into the policy-making process, which is, of course, intimately tied to the legal process and the laws of our land. And you might think at the outset that, of course, there's an obvious connection between research and study of law and the treaty, and that is, of course, because much of the recognition of the treaty and the way in which that's framed in our culture has arisen through legal disputes and ongoing legal processes. But in fact, I think, for me, that is the least important way that the treaty informs my research. I'm not really involved in that sort of dispute process. So rather, what I want to talk about is how the treaty has informed both directly and indirectly my approach to international intellectual property. And that approach has, in essence, two strands. So really, during the 1990s, although the non-trained, officially trained historian in me can trace this well back to the 19th and 18th centuries, the link between intellectual property and trade has always been there. And really, as many of you know, in the late 20th century, that became very critical to the extent that globalised intellectual property norms are so much part of the trade dialogue that they seem to have very little to do with anything intellectual and a lot to do with stuff called property. But a lot of my research is actually about how a lot of the original innovation incentives behind the legal regime aren't about property per se, as we might understand that in terms of rules of ownership. And I'll return to that point shortly. But related to international intellectual property in the New Zealand context, trade is obviously very important. And the other issue that a lot of my research around is the relationship between trade, intellectual property and mataronga Māori, and in particular mataronga Māori in the broader context of Indigenous peoples' rights on the international IP stage. When one talks of intellectual property, and thank you again for the introduction, Mike, if you think of it in terms of patents, copyright and trademarks, that can have two effects. It can alienate anyone really interested in the topic because those are heavily loaded legal terms. It can also betray a total lack of focus on what the subject is really about. If you focus on it as an expression of the way in which culture is commodified and traded, the way in which 
things we need, ranging through to healthcare products, education and values are impacted by regulation, then, at least from my perspective, you start to encounter a much more interesting dialogue about the function of intellectual property, both nationally and internationally. So in terms of how those key factors relate, of course, if you are talking about laws that regulate and impact culture, and I'm conscious in this space of time that that's quite a big sentence and quite a big ambition, but nonetheless, you have to have at least some sort of grasp about what culture you're talking about when you try and put that into a policy-making or legal framework, and that is really part of what I hope to contribute to this ongoing strategic theme discussion. So with that in mind, I thought I would use a few minutes to tell you some specific examples within that framework. So one area that I've been doing some work on, and this is really, in some ways, wasn't necessarily my first choice. The reason for this work has been a lot of international debate and pressure around the issue known on the international stage as the geographical indication the geographical indication really is a statement of geography used as a regulated tool in order to commodify products. But of course, the significance of name and place and turning it into logos, as Charlotte mentioned, is of course raises a whole lot of other cultural issues. My own contribution to the geographical indications debate has to been to indicate that for a number of developing countries and indigenous minority populations both in developing and developed countries, that this debate is very lopsided. It's become about selling legal tools as a way to create development. Any lawyer who's very honest with you will tell you that a legal tool does exactly nothing. What you need is investment in people, investment in resources, and so on. And legal tools come after proper investment and therefore create a way to control that investment. And of course, we've heard a lot about investment law and its relationship with intellectual property too. So that cultural relationship, what kind of investment we want in New Zealand, also lies at the heart of some of my research. The collective, if you like, and holistic view of any culture and the various parts that go into that, whether we call it bicultural New Zealand, multicultural, or the phrase that seems to occasionally emerge, megacultural New Zealand, is, of course, undoubtedly complex. And what it has done to inform my research is to really think about what that actually tells us about intellectual property. It causes, as a number of commentators have said to us, to think about what exactly are we trying to achieve by these legal rules, what is the object and purpose of intellectual property, and in a country with the culture and the simple small size and scale of New Zealand, do we in fact, by introducing some of these rules, and expanding on them shoot ourselves in the foot. In other words, do we make it harder for our culture to be enriched and to flourish, or recognising that our culture is, is interconnected with the world and that is also important to New Zealand, how do we utilise intellectual property tools to maintain 
that kind of balance. My time with the Waitangi Tribunal, where I was really a listener to much evidence given by many iwi, many individuals within that framework, really has helped to enrich my research because it's indicated to me that even though I knew IP was reasonably complex at the outset, that IP has pretty serious impacts across the board. And it's understanding those impacts and understanding how those impacts work within a national cultural setting that I utilise to debate about the appropriate framework of international intellectual property. And I have no idea where I am in terms of timing, but apparently quite good. Degrees of quite good. <laughs> but I would round up some of what I'm saying, and I'm happy to sort of take questions on any of it by indicating the following example. We know that New Zealand is, has been involved in this process of negotiating the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and we also seem to be involved in a process of implementing it, which I think in many ways, and some of you may agree with me, seems to have a large amount of undue haste to it, given that the agreement itself may never come into existence. However, and notice I called it the Trans-Pacific Partnership because it's not an agreement until it comes into force. So the niggly little lawyer side of me hates seeing it as the TPPA, just stick to the TPP because it's not in force yet. But that side is really small, but I mention it to illustrate a bigger picture. And the picture is this, that even if the TPP doesn't come into force, there are at least eight other venues, and international relations people may refer to these as regime shifting, where the same issues are being discussed and are being brought forward as significant ways to embed those standards internationally. So one of the contributions that international IP scholarship can make to this area is to indicate the way in which if you keep shifting the forum in which you speak, you eventually push the dialogue your way. And so one of the themes that I think is important about recognising the breadth of national cultural research and what we're calling enriching national cultural research, both from the discipline of law and across the university, is to guarantee that those voices actually are heard within those different debates. One of the features that occurs is that one voice is often leading that debate. So at the WTO, the World Trade Organization, it's perhaps unsurprising that the trade dialogue is the prominent one. At the Convention on Biological Diversity, it's perhaps unsurprising that there's an environmental dialogue that's leading the way. One of the areas of research and one of the ways in which I think we can enrich the international culture, if we can say that, of international IP, is to make better linkages through those different disciplinary areas. So as yet I'm one of the few lawyers in this strategic theme, and I think that part of that is in order to help us build some of this interdisciplinary dialogue. It's not because one discipline should dominate another, but rather it's my theme through my research that enriching national culture is about harnessing the, in fact, remarkable ability across various parts of New Zealand to actually talk across discipline. So that's where I'll plan to end, so thank you.
Thank you very much, Susie. So our second speaker uh, is Jeff Tatum, Professor of Classics. Um, and I was tempted to introduce Jeff by saying he's a Roman from Texas. But that's not entirely true, but almost true. So um, uh, Jeff is a Roman specialist who did his PhD at, at Texas and works on Republican Rome and on a biography of Mark Antony, I think that's one of the current projects, as well as on how the ancient world is connected to contemporary New Zealand. His books include um, one with a title which I think has everything to do with sovereignty, but you must tell me otherwise, Jeff. Uh, Jeff. Always I Am Caesar, um, published by Blackwell in 2008. So, Jeff, welcome to the, the panel and to the stage to talk about the treaty in the ancient world. <laughs> Thank you, Charlotte. You'll forgive me if I read, but it's my only chance of keeping myself to seven minutes because I'm just that kind of person, I'm afraid. Um, perhaps even the most ingenious amongst you is trying to figure out what possible connection there can be between the Treaty of Waitangi and the Professor of Classics, even at Victoria University. So perhaps a bit of background may prove useful. One of the areas in which my teaching and research concentrate is on Greek culture during the period of imperial Rome, that is to say, the situation of Greeks, especially Greek intellectuals, but all Greeks, under the emperors. What may not be known to everyone is that in the first, second, and third centuries of our era, Greek culture, both high and low, Greek language and literature, Greek material culture was accessible to everyone from the Black Sea to Spain. Every city had a Greek theater, a Roman bath, every city had bilingualism, certainly at the highest levels, but even at the lowest levels of culture. Rome in the imperial period projected itself self-consciously as a bicultural society. At the same time that this dual culture was accessible throughout the Mediterranean world, participants in Latin culture or Greek culture always participated in each of these cultures distinctively, even if they were individuals who avidly participated in both. It is an important part of the cultural dimension of the empire to understand Greco-Roman society, Greco-Roman biculturalism. And throughout my career, I've written and taught about this subject in the United States, in Australia, and in New Zealand. And in important ways, it's different here. But let's step back. In the beginning, or at least so far back as Edward Gibbon, Greco-Roman biculturalism was thought of mostly in terms of assimilation. The nations of the empire insensibly melted into the Roman name, as Gibbon put it. Now, this view has long prevailed, and it's still important, not least thanks to a New Zealander, Sir Ronald Scottsheim, the most brilliant Roman historian of the 20th century, and a graduate of Victoria University, or Victoria College, as I suspect it was in those days. Now, Syme's view of imperial Rome, like Gibbon's, I think it's pretty clear, reflected an unreconstructed British view of the world. And this is unsurprising, especially in a New Zealander of his generation, especially a Pakeha New Zealander of his generation, for whom two people, one nation, doubtless meant amalgamation in favor of one New Zealand culture over the other. Just as a gifted boy from Taranaki could rise to become Camden Professor of Ancient History at Oxford, this is by and large Syme's view of the whole of the Roman Empire, any talented provincial, then or now, could make his mark with the people who mattered most, and for Syme, those were the ones in the imperial 
center. Put differently, Syme's lived experience as a New Zealander in the earliest 20th century inevitably affected his reading of antiquity, and Syme's eminence affects our reading of antiquity even in the 21st century. For the likes of Syme, for the likes of Gibbon, and the view persists, biculturalism is ideally a kind of melting point, melting pot. Now, the advent of subaltern studies changed all that. And Roman historians since the 80s have tended to view the empire largely through the prism of post-colonialism, hence a concentration on contentiousness and authoritarian excess. Consequently, nowadays, every expression of Greek identity in the empire becomes an exercise in subversion, or at least cultural resistance against Roman hegemony. Biculturalism, then, is no longer a melting pot. Instead, it's about the sparks thrown off by the friction between biculturalism's two uneven parts. And these two competing perspectives suited me just fine when I taught in the US and when I taught in Australia, two self-described multicultural societies, each of which still favors the melting pot ideal. For students there, biculturalism was a fascinating alternative imaginary, a kind of unreal idea through which they deplored any failure of total integration, but also focused, perhaps a little too sharply, on trying to decide which culture was best, Greek or Roman. There can only be one. There can only be one. Now, my approach to Greco-Roman biculturalism has been changed by my experience in New Zealand, first as a resident, then as a citizen, but most especially by my encounters every year with the students I teach in my first-year Roman history survey, which inevitably deals with biculturalism during the time of the Roman Empire. These are students for whom biculturalism is not an alternative imaginary, but a part of their real life. Now, let me make it clear that in my survey of Roman history, for obvious reasons, I don't dilate on the long and complicated history of the Treaty of Waitangi, mainly because I don't know a lot about it. We do, however, review the principles of the treaty, and we look at the conflicting views of the treaty relationship. In short, we tend to look at the treaty as the foundation of New Zealand biculturalism, but also as proof that whatever our ideals, New Zealand biculturalism remains a contested matter on which a broad range of competing views concentrates itself. And then we turn to Rome. Well, so far, so obvious, I suppose. And it will be unsurprising to you that each year's class throws up staunch assimilationists, staunch adherents of cultural resistance. And each of these views the students find in their own culture, and they inevitably find it in the Roman Empire. But there are other students, quite a few actually, who talk differently about living in a bicultural world. From their perspective, there is no obvious reason for all New Zealanders to be alike. They're accustomed to difference and distinctions, and they see distinctions as neither aggressive nor threatening. And they are very keen to look at the ancient evidence and to spot out evidence of this habit of mind bubbling up in the Roman world, not least in the imperial Greek writer Plutarch, whose famous work, his masterpiece, The Parallel Lives of Greeks and Romans, is clearly suggestive of this habit of mind. Let me put this differently. Many of my students, our students, plainly feel that two distinct cultures, by way of their distinctions, can animate our common society, and perhaps 
they insist, this was true of Rome. And so since coming to New Zealand, I've begun to argue in my printed work that this is a kind of sensibility that one can see not just in Plutarch, but in other imperial writers, especially imperial Greek writers. And you'll find this in my latest book on Plutarch, if you decide to look for it in the bookshop. And you'll also find it in my teaching. Not that ancient Rome and modern New Zealand should be conflated. Far from it. History doesn't repeat itself, and I don't like folding one culture into another. But the idea that the preservation of differences is an avenue toward, is an avenue toward cultural strength was very much a part of the Romans' thinking. Which is, of course, not to say that everyone in imperial Rome rubbed along together nicely. Just think of Juvenal's famous complaint about the Orontes flowing into the Tiber. And there are plenty of jerks in New Zealand. Just turn on the radio. But what becomes clear from the New Zealand experience, with a clarity perhaps less obtainable elsewhere, is how misguided it is to try to reduce biculturalism to something simple and singular. Assimilation is part of the mix. So is cultural resistance. And so is what Kwame Apia calls universality with difference. There is no single approach to biculturalism, and perhaps there shouldn't be. Its very nature, in its very nature, biculturalism, especially our biculturalism, founded on a treaty written in two inadequately aligned languages, stimulates questions about itself. Interrogation lies at the very heart of biculturalism. It did then, and it does now. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Um, uh, next uh, up is Professor Yi-Yan Wang. Uh, she is the uh, program director in the School of Languages and Culture. She's published widely on modern Chinese literature and culture. She's uh, interested in modern Chinese intellectual history and the Chinese diaspora studies. Um, perhaps her current research on local stories and national identity competing national narratives might give us some perspective on the contemporary New Zealand story that includes Māori, European, and as we've heard today, the bicultural, multicultural, megacultural, universality, uh, those sorts of terms. So welcome, uh, Professor Yian Wang. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, when I was invited to speak at this forum, I was a bit worried. I said, oh, I know nothing about the treaty by Tani. Uh, what can I say? So set me into thinking about the treaty and uh, the British colonial experience. Because as the Chinese, and uh, I think the Chinese often have very negative uh, impressions of the British practice of signing treaties <laughs> with, with the countries that they went to. You know, for me, is that the Treaty of Nanking, which it kind, kind of forced the opium trade to, to the Chinese, and then the Hong Kong, they went to the British Empire and all that. So I had to really read the treaty or read the writings about the treaty with care. Then I discovered that actually the treat, this treaty, the Treaty of Wat Tangi, does seem different. It's a lot fairer and it recognized that Maori people uh, were indigenous to this land 
and uh, you know, the British were willing to build this nation in partnership with the Maori people. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. And not only that's good, because the treaty also has ethos that underpinning, underpinning a lot of values that's relevant to what we do and how we behave today, um, such as uh, respect, uh, such as um, uh, the rights, like the, it specifically said that Maori people have equal rights uh, with the British. I thought that's very important. And also it valued good governance. Uh, it actually valued the process of negotiating differences and how to respect each other's differences. I thought all these values that I agree with and... Um, even though I didn't really come to this country as a Chinese, uh, somehow I have to transcend my Chineseness to be here. Uh, because, you know, you come here for the academic position, you can't claim your ethnicity as a credit. Uh, and that's all the better, I guess. If people like me from other parts of the world are happy coming here and uh, um, are here contributing to the nation building. I think New Zealand is much more better, much better for that. So comes to the question, what does the treaty really say to me? Because as Jeff was saying, biculturalism, does biculturalism exclude people like myself? Recently, there has been a book published by a Chinese. The title of the book is called Being Chinese, and the subtitle is A New Zealand Story. Obviously, yes, she, the, the writer's name is Helene, Helene Wong, and she feels that she is New Zealander while being Chinese. Yes, so of course her story is a story of success because she seemed to have worked in the high levels uh, as a public servant. But her story also shows that New Zealand uh, has always had shifting policies. So one day you have more tolerance, next day you have less, and one day you include all the people, and maybe next day you don't as much. Uh, so her lesson of growing up as a Chinese is to stay low. And so she feels that she sometimes was an insider and sometimes she was an outsider. She said, being in the public service, that she feels that most times she was treated like one of them or one of us. She alternated between the two. And at the end of the talk, I asked the question, um, how does biculturalism entail that the Chinese communities have a legitimate place in this society? And she, her answer was too simplistic to me. She said, oh, well, we move beyond that. We are much better off now. Yeah. But how? On what basis? Yes, so that's my question. And to, to me, there is another most important question is that, is there someone that can be called a public intellectual who is also Chinese. It seems that uh, whether this country wants more Chinese, less Chinese, more Asians, less Asians, that's a question to the politicians, and most of them are not Chinese. So do the Chinese or Asian communities have a place 
in the cultural citizenship, in the real true sense of political citizenship, have the voice to be heard. And that seems to be irrelevant to the Chinese communities because they felt that if they stay low and nobody noticed them, and they would sneak in. <laughs> but, uh, you know, for me, I haven't been to New Zealand very long. I've been here less than five years. Um, so I can't speak with authority that how Chinese have been featured in the history of New Zealand uh, um, uh, nation. Uh, but I do feel, you know, the, New the Chinese alternated from being the dirty, uh, you know, disease carriers and uh, in extremely poverty and job grabbers because they would willing to work for very low salary or the Chinese who are really the pet immigrants, you know, high achievers in high school, um, hardworking, good savers, the buy houses. And until these days, you say all the Chinese stories, most stories about Chinese seem to be negative. You know, someone is buying, oh yeah, all the Chinese are buying up New Zealand houses and farms and the properties and all that. Uh, can the Chinese be normal? Uh, can the Chinese think? I mean, those are the questions I think not only we should ask the Chinese communities, but we also should ask the New Zealand communities uh, as, a, as a whole. Um, how do we address the cultural citizenship of people coming from other parts of the world? And I think the treaty sets a very good example because the treaty says the country was established with partnership between the New Zealand state, the government, we and the Maori people. What does the New Zealand government represent? I would take it represents all the people who are willing to reside here and accept it. Um, you know, the law regulations uh, um, and the social conditions uh, of New Zealand. So uh, that's why I say that this the treaty is extremely relevant because it allows the space for people like me to come here and work here and most importantly, be happy here and feel that we are part of the community and uh, we can contribute to this nation building in whatever way we are capable of. You know, of course, I do research. The research seems to be relevant, but they're not totally relevant. Why does uh, uh, New Zealand wants to know about, uh, you know, what the Chinese national story was? You know, how do the Chinese compete with the national narratives? What's relevant here? Yeah, for me is that New Zealand is better off to have such open mind, to have people coming in and they contribute to, to knowledge, to the structure of knowledge, to the construction of nation in whatever way they can. I think New Zealand is much better off for that. That's why I say the treaty actually turns out to be such a good thing. I have to tell the Chinese now. <laughs> treaties is not, not always ne negative, and some treaties are better than others. Thank you. We go on to our, our fourth speaker, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce my school colleague, Professor of Philosophy, Simon Keller. 
um, from Australia, but did his MA and PhD at Princeton. Um, and as many of us know, Simon works on questions of ethics and of um, political philosophy. Um, he gave a, his inaugural last year talking about patriotism, um, and I think surprised all of us with his provocative take on that subject. His 2007 book, The Limits of Loyalty, won the American Philosophical Association Book Prize in 2009. And this afternoon, he's giving us the philosophical take on the treaty. Simon. Thanks. Well, um, I think like Jeff, my introduction uh, to the treaty and its significance came entirely through my students, and that's been the theme of my interactions with it, both as a teacher and as a researcher at Vic. The first time I realised just how significant a presence it was, or it is in New Zealand, was when I was teaching a second-year political philosophy class within my first few weeks in New Zealand. And I thought I'd get them to do an exercise which I'd done in Australia, and it's all very predictable and easy to uh, handle, which was having a class debate about whether New Zealand should become a republic. Very quickly, the discussion turned to what that would mean for the treaty and whether its consequences for the treaty would be, would be good or bad to be embraced or rejected. Um, and not only that, but it was clearly that question, the question of the status of the treaty, that ignited the most varied and passionate responses among the students. It came up again when I talked about the ethics of patriotism and it became clear that when uh, my students think about what gives them pride in being a New Zealander, the treaty is in one way or another understood or misunderstood at the centre of their uh, national identity so far as they see their national identity as a source of, of pride. Um, and this presented you know, pedagogical but also philosophical challenges to me and I've tried to work through them by continuing to make the treaty a sort of centrepiece of my teaching of political philosophy. Um, what I try to do with students is to read the treaty carefully, word by word, um, which is often a learning experience for them as much as for me, and to think about the significance that it has for their individual roles as New Zealand citizens. Um, it's something that, especially for progressively-minded students, as they often think themselves to be, really challenges uh, their theoretical approach to citizenship. Many of them, if you ask them, are staunchly anarchist or cosmopolitan, like radically cosmopolitan in their views about what it means to be a human and to have rights and to be a citizen of a political society. Um, but thinking about the kind of special status that comes from the duty of honouring the treaty is something that they also accept as significant but find very hard, as I do, to fit with various um, broader, uh, strictly philosophical and more antiseptic approaches to thinking about citizenship. The second way in which my students have led me into understanding the significance philosophically of the treaty was through a PhD student who I had who wanted to write about the ethics of treaties with the goal of writing something about the ethical status of the Treaty of Waitangi. And um, it was an excellent thesis, and he started from what philosophers across history have said about the nature of international treaties and very quickly concluded that there wasn't much there that was very helpful when it came to understanding the deep significance that the Treaty of Waitangi ought to hold. Um, and quickly, the sorts of things that philosophers have written about treaties from an ethical standpoint have mainly been about the important principles like giving people notice, say 24, 48 hours, when you're planning to violate a treaty. Um, <laughs> make, uh, you know, ma making sure 
that whenever you sign a treaty, you don't do anything that might make it have any, uh, you know, place any restrictions on what people do beyond a generation. So I do think there's a terrifically important philosophical question that, that he identified and um, we've made some progress on, which is thinking about the extent to which the Treaty of Waitangi ought to be considered, um, strictly speaking, a treaty, certainly an international treaty. Perhaps it ought to be considered more for its significance and importance as a kind of a founding or a constitutional document, something that lends legitimacy to a government as it goes ahead or to a society as it moves ahead that uh, tells us who we are and what we need to do in order to be able to live uh, in a political culture as opposed to a set of promises made um, that need to be honoured, though, of course, um, there are promises that need to be honoured that are involved um, as well. So I guess that when I think about the treaty and its significance for my teaching and research, I think of it very much um, as an outsider, partly because it's become clear to me just how significant the fact is that I didn't grow up here for my ability to understand the importance that the treaty has to an identity and to a way of thinking and the way that it informs um, a political sensibility which has you know, important ongoing consequences. Um, but also as an outsider in my role, I suppose, as a philosopher, someone who's always trying to come up with the theory or the overarching account that doesn't apply just to New Zealand but applies to everybody generally. And the challenge of fitting the significance of the treaty and its role in New Zealand national identity with that approach is one that I feel uh, strongly and, and struggle with. And I think that leads us towards having to think about more seriously about things like the political significance of, of memory and, and culture and identity. So I reckon that one way in which uh, philosophy and philosophical research can enrich our national culture through an understanding of the treaty is by doing something that I think has been missing in many discussions um, in the public realm, and that is to put a clear ethical uh, slant on the understanding of the treaty, the fact that it creates genuine rights and obligations, not just a nice sort of uh, something to be proud of when we're marching at the Olympics or whatever. Um, and, but I also think that an understanding of the New Zealand experience and its genuine uniqueness uh, and the role that the treaty plays, which is really different from any other kind of um, cultural document that I'm aware of, um, can inform thinking about the nature of citizenship and human rights and the legitimacy of political society at a more theoretical level too. So that's something that I think that an understanding of New Zealand culture can be used to, I suppose, to enrich a broader philosophical debate as well. Thank you, Simon. Um, we'll move on to um, our fifth speaker, who is uh, Nan O'Sullivan. Um, she's the Deputy Head of School of Design and Programme Director for the First Year Design in, at the school. Uh, she's an amazing architect and um, is interested in widening the scope of design away from the predominant Eurocentric to a more culturally inclusive approach. Her research involves the use of culture and Indigenous practices um, to address both contemporary and future scenarios in design thinking, the teaching of design and the practice of design. So I welcome Nan. Kia ora. Um, firstly, let me acknowledge the experience in the room and um, admit that I am a little daunted. Um, but 
Most importantly, um, thank you for the opportunity to speak a little bit about um, the larger context of the design school, my research um, and teaching, which addresses um, an attempt to establish a more appropriate space and appreciation for culture within design. Um, this presentation is a very, very abridged version of a, a paper I gave in Hong Kong recently at the ASEA 2016 Cultural Re-Evolution Conference. Um, and it's supported, um, and probably most importantly, by the student work which inspires my research. As part of this talk, I hope to identify the relevance and opportunity for indigenous uh, visual spatial strategies and, and indigenous ideologies within design <coughs> practice, retrospectively, presently, um, and as we move forward. Much of what I do is based on the belief that within education, specifically design education, the establishment of a space of culture um, must be a shared one. Culture and cultural knowledge come from many places and should be shared within this important space. And as stated by the steering committee, the Treaty Partnership um, is a living organism and indeed a healthy, live relationship always is. For me, this extends... Um, for me, actually, it starts with my students. The students are also a living organism, not an empty box to be filled with skill and knowledge. So today, um, I would like to start by introducing the motivation for my own research around cultural inclusiveness, expand, uh, explain a little bit about one cause for the emission of Indigenous culture from design education, and then have a look at some of the coursework I've instigated to provide a space, I hope, for more inclusive practices. Um, in the last decade, quotes like, education must shift into the future tense from Alvin Toffler's future shock, have characterised design education and motivated its focus, focus on what it describes as a future in a world which is becoming increasingly complex and where the reference points are constantly changing and blame this for the cause for little change. Fortunately, there has been a significant shift. Um, a significant shift has occurred from, in this observation. Globally, within our institutions and schools, the need to address diversity is now paramount. With this came the opportunity to look further, deeper, and more holistically at education. Past lessons, efforts, and outcomes inform our progress as much as the emergent and advancing technologies that seemingly in design have a life of their own. So this presentation discusses the facilitation of such a shift via the use of Indigenous knowledge within design pedagogy. The, hope, the cohort that makes up the first year design school inspires much of my research that focuses on the inclusion of indigenous symbols, visual spatial strategies and ideologies that can be introduced to the curriculum to illuminate pathways of cultural awareness and reciprocal appreciation of diversity. This is my class. My contribution is to investigate the use of reciprocal relationship for all those sharing this important cultural space and asks how within design education can we express and maintain our own cultures while respecting and engaging with the others. The call for the cultural diversity within 21st century education is well established within the graduate attributes of many tertiary institutions. Contemporary design curricula although still dominated by a Eurocentric model, constantly acknowledges the value of non-Western cultural and creative practices and promises to graduate globally competent citizens able to adapt to diverse cultural demands, 
communicate across boundaries and be aware of global scales and issues. We certainly talk the talk. In design, we have yet to walk the walk. So, from my standpoint and that of the design school, situated in New Zealand, where the proud, vocal, visually articulate and prolific Māori peoples are the Indigenous and many, many more Pacifica peoples equipped with similar skills of visual communication, storytelling and making a domiciled, one must ask why were these skills and this knowledge ever overlooked from our aesthetic education? And I find myself asking, how is it that within this education system that claims inclusive approaches, can aesthetic education still be dominated by a working model that privileges a Western approach? The solution, I suggest, is not an us-or-them scenario, but one of an appreciation that knowledge and skills come from many cultures. A little historic rationale for the exclusion of Indigenous knowledge in New Zealand is an awkward read. It is not, however, a unique read. Put succinctly, unlike traditional art and craft, design is a discipline developed well after the colonial period in the mid-20th century, and as such, design has tended to disregard Indigenous culture as having little to offer the disciplines. And recently, Rawini Higgins, our Deputy Vice-Chancellor of Māori, wrote, Mātangara Māori should not be confined to the pre-colonial era, because it, its evolution is also about knowledge, interaction, production and hybridity. Paralleling this are calls from the design professions globally for an increase in diversity within design education and practice. And although these incentives for the fiscal and ethical demands for diversity are yet to be cohesively aligned, I believe they can be allied. To begin my attempts to place Indigenous culture in design education, I looked for ways to link existing practices of existing practices with Indigenous practices, although they ever acknowledged design's modernist ways that we in design find ourselves wedded to have much to thank Indigenous practices and ideologies for. Today I'm going to look at two of the three examples I discuss in my research where Indigenous knowledge and modernist knowledge show correlation and commonality. Exposing this was really just a matter of connecting the dots, but what was most rewarding for me was the realisation of the relevance and opportunity Indigenous knowledge has for the future of design thinking and practice, not just as a nation, but globally. So two aspects I will discuss are visual language and spatial connections. The Industrial Revolution in the eight, late 1800s set the stage for the removal of any cultural referencing within what is currently taught as the modernist aesthetic language. Until this point, ornament had flourished in both theory and practice. The horrors of the emergent mass production and, eco and economical social divide, along with cultural, religious and historic visual references that were now considered, were removed, sorry, um, because they were now considered obsessive and they were excrutinised as such. As part of their legacy, the 20th, first century architects and 20th century architects and designers began to question the overall use of ornament, with Austrian architect Adolf Loos scorning ornament and labelling it as no less than a crime, citing expressions of indigeneity as counterproductive to the evolution of a modern culture. This and other fanatical outbursts initiated the elimination of culture from the curricula of art and architecture. And history tells us it took with it cultural references, and I argue it did not. Similar simple, similar simple grammars and codified instructions for use dating back as far as 1500 BC can also be found in the date stampling of the pottery produced by, 
by the Lapita peoples, acknowledged as the common ancestor of the peoples of the Pacifica, including New Zealand. This observation illuminates the first connection I make between traditional indigenous practices and what ironically, or incorrectly, aesthetic education refers to as the inception of mod the modernist approach. My research posits that visual references to culture understood by the reformists in the 19th century to be visually ex excessive, specific to few and therefore not universal, are not alien to our modernist practice. They were not unequivocally removed, as has been suggested from aesthetic education. They are actually tacit within the aesthetic language instigated by the reformist and further used in the development of the universal visual language by the design modernists. The question is how do we use this knowledge in first year design? This particular project takes place in the first couple of weeks of trimester one and serves as a tool to introduce the students to the diversity they bring to the university. Importantly, it asks them to discover and express who they are by looking to their heritage and then to place the individual into the larger collective, that being New Zealand. Having acknowledged these sacred connections, the students use indigenous methods and strategies of marking alongside modernist principles, both of which share geometries, to create the common goal, beauty from chaos. The aim is to create a cultural space that holds and appreciates the diversity of the cultures that are within that space. The second correlation is found in an appreciation of space as a connection. Having established an appreciation for the cultural space that the indigenous, that indigenous knowledge holds as an important place within the second year, within the second year, students are asked to, to situate indigenous ideologies beside, as counterpoint or as nexus to the development of their own design ideals. In this paper, the students are initially introduced to Tongan academic Augustino Mahina's theory of reality, Tava and Telava, both of which place an, an emphasis on the nurturing of connections, be they historic, sacred or eternal, between humans and humans, humans and things, and humans and nature. Using Māori and Pacifica ideologies like Tava, which says, people are thought to walk forward into the past and walk backwards into the future, both taking place in the present where the past and the future are constantly mediated in the ever-transforming present. With a similar respect for legacy and guiding pathways to the future are also held within Māori ideology. The students' research design ideals and strategies and have shown time and time again not only a relevance for Indigenous knowledge to design thinking and practice, but the innovation, insight and opportunity for critical approaches towards positive change in global issues. Students address issues of sustainability, our connection and responsibilities to natural resources through consumption and consumerism, along with the tangible and intangible relationships we engage with online. Supported by this undergraduate experience, I established the Design and Culture Drill Stream, which is a postgraduate design research innovation labs. Um, and in three years, we have grown from one student to nine, which represents half of our graduate cohort. And I would like to end this um, discussion with some of the comments from our first years um, that possibly we can consider later in our discussions. One student said, and we have to read it off here, and this is when they're working with culture in the first year, you can't force connections where, they, where there aren't any. I feel distant from Kiwi culture and believe it is so young that it hasn't even really been established. I also think it is disrespectful to even use Māori symbols and culture in my work, as I'm as white as it gets. 
Other students through the experience have said, Personally, I have learnt that culture and individuality are powerful tools to use when communicating my ideas. Other students have said, um, I have learnt through this project that everybody's life is a unique meaning and purpose to strive to be themselves. Also, it has taught me that connecting with your cultural heritage can open new perspectives. So to answer the question posed, how can we live up to the vision and our name? I think it starts with knowing your own name and respecting others' names. Thank you for the opportunity to bring um, along the work of my students um, and to table it for discussion. Thank you. So the last of our speakers in the panel uh, is Ocean Mercier, uh, who's a senior lecturer at Takawa Amaui, um, whose key interest, of course, is how Matauranga Māori and science connect. I say, of course, only because we're familiar with Ocean's work, not because we know how that connection works. Uh, so Ocean has a PhD in physics and is the, uh, an author about film and is the presenter of Māori TV's Project Matauranga, and I think is Victoria University's renaissance woman. <laughs> she is the developer of the Takawa Amaui Atlas, the cultural mapping project, which I think is um, really innovative, and one of the richest voices I hear around the campus. So it gives me great pleasure, Ocean, in inviting you to be the speaker at the end of this part of this afternoon. Tēnā koutou katoa, ngā mihi nui ke koutou. Uh, kia ora Charlotte, uh, thank you for that um, uh, beautiful introduction. Uh, I, I won't live up to that uh, Renaissance woman tag, that's for sure, in this uh, seven minutes. Uh, but if you want to give me longer, that's fine. Um, uh, well, ko wai o he uri o Ngāti Parau, he ruia, uh, he, uh, he i ruia mai i hikurangi, i tipu mai ai ki raro ahumairangi, ki te whare, uh, ki te whare, ki te upoko o te ika Māui. Um, I've, um, I'm really thrilled about this opportunity to present to you because I've actually been at university, Victoria University, te whare wānanga o te upoko o te ika Māui. Since before it was te whare wānanga o te upoko o te ika Māui, uh, my father studied the law and um, he uh, would bring me along to his lectures as a three-year-old. So I I've been here for a long time. That would have been in the late, <laughs> late 70s, early 80s. I didn't get started on my physics just then, um, uh, but maybe that's why I decided not to do the law. Um, anyway, um, I, I bring that to the table because I do have a, a long-standing connection with this university and a love for this university. Um, and so I'm really fascinated in this question that we're engaging with around uh, the Māori name for our university. Uh, but as Charlotte mentioned, um, I've just about spent more time in Māori studies now than I have in physics. It's, it's sort of getting equal. 13 years on one side, 14 years on the other side. Um, so the research and the teaching particularly that I'll talk about today does... Um, explore the connections, the interactions between mātauranga and science. Um, and this is just a, a word salad um, that encapsulates some of the themes that we talk about in the Māori science course that I've been teaching for more than 10 years now. Um, and so we, we do engage with treaty questions in this course, um, even just calling 
calling it Māori science is still controversial. Um, but just to give you a bit of an overview of the key points that I want to talk about today, um, they sort of flow on from that statement I just made around the, the notion of Māori science being controversial. And it's really about attitudes. I think if we think about the sciences, the key challenge there, well, one of them is biocultural competency as the roadmap for um, uh, science and conservation in the environment recognises bicultural competency in that area is variable. That's um, a nice, polite way to put it. Um, certainly, bicultural competency in the sciences is also variable, and attitudes are very variable. Um, and so I just want to say a few words about that, I guess. Um, but think about just going back to one of the questions that we were asked about the session. Um, we were asked to talk about how our different research fields uh, enrich national culture and how the treaty plays a role in that. Why might this be difficult and what can we do about it? And I think the, the attitudes thing is one of the difficulties. And what can we do about it? I think we've got some, some models, some examples in the work around vision mātauranga, around the number of Māori scientists who are engaging across mātauranga and science, um, such as Priscilla Wehi, uh, Kepa Morgan, Dan Hikurua, to name just a few, Pauline Harris. Um, and so the other point that I want to talk about is, is actually along the lines of attitudinal shift. And um, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Rawania Higgins um, and uh, Professor Puyariwi, uh, of course, in their research on Te Reo Māori and attitudes towards Te Reo Māori, put together a, a framework which I think is potentially quite useful for the sciences um, of the Zeppa model or the right shifting framework, in which, um, well, how do you work on attitudes? Well, you recognise that each person is at where they're at, and um, steps to shifting in, in um, a, a, a right-handed direction or a positive direction are, um, are something we can do about, about that. But um, let's just move on and think about those, those attitudes. Um, now, I, I don't enjoy reading the Bob Brocky Monday science column, but I always do. I force myself to. Uh, this one, uh, Lydia Weavers responded to uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, with a, a great response to his critique of the humanities and the Royal Society's incorporation or recognition of the humanities as science. Um, and he's quoted um, Rodney Hyde here, the treaty may be politically significant, but its scientific significance is nil. Um, so I had fun uh, getting my students to engage with this particular question uh, because... Um, there's, there's, you know, tons of things that we could respond to in that. And look, this is Rodney Hyde and his mates. Um, so that's that's sort of one end of a scale, if you like, of of attitudes in terms of um, the role of the treaty um, within science, Māori and the sciences, that that whole space. So, um, of course, Article Three equal citizenship, I think an expectation was certainly there amongst Māori that, um, that this um, part of the treaty would, um, yeah, the expectation there that Māori would benefit equally as anybody else in Aotearoa New Zealand from the, um, 
science and technology that developed over the decades. And I've just put up, I'm not going to go through that quote, so I'll just leave that up for a moment so you can read it. Um, yeah, so going back to my Māori science course, I like to frame that with the, um, with the statement, we have always been scientists and we continue to be scientists. Uh, but that's a contested view, and, um, and it reflects, I think, a widely held view that, that, that there is this, this rub, these, these sparks, if you like, uh, between the notion of Māori and science. Just a screen grab from the roadmap that I mentioned earlier, uh, the Ministers of Conservation. <clears throat> in this, um, this highlighted bit here recognised that science in this respect and the respect that they're interested in, i.e. the kaitiakitanga of our environment, includes not just the biological and natural sciences, but also mathematical, engineering, social science, sciences, economics and mātauranga Māori. So there are lots of people along that spectrum. If we're thinking about this notion of right-shifting attitudes along the science spectrum and um, attitudes towards Māori and their place in that spectrum, uh, not that you know what other people think really matters that much, but actually it does. You know, when you have to work with uh, scientists who don't think you have anything to bring to the table except that you tick a box in their vision matauranga um, stuff, then then yes, these do become salient issues that we have to grapple with and deal with. Um, so, valuing and committing to the treaty, this is just a screen grab from our web page, um, which has our, um, our obligations and responsibilities and how we expect to meet those. Uh, there are things that I remind my students of, they're often engaging themselves with these questions um, because they, they just find themselves naturally in many situations in which uh, they've got to know what the chapter and verse is, uh, what the university line is on these things. Um, so just a bit of a reflection on the, the name there, uh, up in the corner. Um, but I don't want to lose sight of these two points here. Um, no, that's okay. So, Victoria, te wānanga o te tika Māori. Uh, there it is on the, the sign in front as well. Um, I guess what I want to say here is really around the, the echoes that I see uh, with this image here. Uh, so this is the Kent Terrace, Cambridge Terrace monument to Queen Victoria. And Māori are represented on this monument, but they're certainly not, uh, not the, the, the first thing that strikes you when you look at this particular image. So, um, so some of our students are sort of engaging with these questions of our places and our place monuments and place marks and how they, what they represent, how they continue to represent the narrative of the empire, the grand narrative, and thinking about ways that we can um, speak back to that, disrupt that, um, even to the extent of using uh, things like augmented reality, which we all know about now because of Pokemon, um, to present uh, digital layers in the environment that tell us, that reflect uh, histories that we can't necessarily see um, and what's, what's built there. So I think I'll just end on that note, actually. Um, and thank you for listening. Kia ora.
To stay up to date with the latest cutting-edge research from Victoria University of Wellington, subscribe now through iTunes, Stitcher or your favourite podcast provider. Thanks to Te Koki New Zealand School of Music alumni Kenyon Shanky and Stephen Patton for the use of their music. Victoria University of Wellington. Capital thinking, globally minded.